Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, loved ones. It is uh, great to gather together in the name of the Lord and sing some of these, like they're Easter songs, right? But uh, it's always Easter for us as believers because Jesus Christ is risen. Amen? And uh, it's glad, I'm glad that you're here today. I have no idea what many of your weeks were like, but uh, Lord willing, you're glad to be here, and I hope this will be a refuge for you. Uh, if you're a guest, I just want to ask you to do one thing for me. Uh, we're thankful that you came, but if you stop at the orange tent on your way out, I don't want you to miss out on that experience. You get to meet a couple of new people from the church and learn more information. We've got more information we want to give you, and we've got a gift we want to give you. And so if you'd stop by that orange tent on your way out, if today's your first time or you've never stopped by that orange tent before, uh, we'd love it if you do that. And then what we're doing as a church is we're going through this book together in the New Testament called 1 Peter. And uh, we're in chapter 2 today. We're going to start in verse 11. You can go and turn there right now if you want to. I'm going to pray for us, and then we're going to keep going through 1 Peter and chapter 2, verse 11 today. Let me pray. Father, thank you that we can open up your word and that you have a word for us this morning. And I know from studying this week, there are things in this passage that I would never just say on my own. And I believe you've got a word for us this morning. And it's going to be a word for some of us that's going to resonate with our spirit. Others of it is going to be very uh, contrary to anything we would naturally want to talk about or do or be. And uh, God, I pray you'd change us. I know you're changing me. I pray you'd change all of my friends and all the people that come into this church today. God, help us to be the people you desire for us to be and live the life you intended for us to live. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, if you've been watching the news at all, I don't think it's a news flash to you that uh, Billy Graham passed away this past week. And you've got a guy that's, uh, for many people, was the most influential Christian since the Apostle Paul. And some of you here came to Christ at a crusade that he preached at, or maybe saw him on television. Some of you are young, and you saw more of Billy Graham this week than you've ever seen in your life, uh, read more about him. He's influenced all of our lives, whether we realize it or not, directly or indirectly. I, I heard one historian say that he preached over 200 million people in his preaching uh, worldwide. He's been a counselor to you know, presidents and kings and queens and Various folks been on television. Back when television was like a new thing, he was on television. And they made evangelistic movies because of his life and had a huge impact. And so only the Lord knows, and, and he probably is finding out right now how much impact he had for eternity. And so for many of us, it feels like a loss. But did you know that his ministry almost never happened? I remember my wife and I took our girls down to the Billy Graham Museum a few years ago, and there's a story that you can read while you're there, and you can probably find it online as well, but the story ends up talking about how Billy Graham was at a crossroads in his life. He was the president of a college. He was the youngest president of any college in the United States at the time. He was in his early 30s, I believe it was, back in the 1940s, and uh, he didn't know what God wanted him to do with his life. He had done a couple Billy Graham crusades, and he did one in Michigan, one in Charlotte. He had just preached one in Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania, Altoona, Pennsylvania, I think that's how you pronounce that, and uh, he self-proclaimed that as a flop. He didn't, did you ever think that Billy Graham would preach a flop? You know, he'd be like, and he didn't know what to do with his life. You ever been there? And he wasn't even sure if the Bible that he was preaching was true. He had a friend <clears throat> named Charles Templeton, and you can look him up as well. They both were evangelists for Youth for Christ in their younger years, and what happened was that Billy Graham went to be the president of this college, and Charles Templeton went to Princeton University to continue studying. And as he was studying, he started to realize in the Bible there's things that seem to contradict. There are things that maybe don't seem like they line up with modern science. And, and he started to tell Billy, the answers to life are in academia, not in Jesus, not in the Bible. And Billy Graham was confused about that. He got invited to go preach at a place out in California, 
It was called Forest Home. It was a family retreat center. I've never been there myself, but apparently there's these trails that are out there. And he spent a lot of time studying the Bible, walking these trails. And as he studied the Bible in preparation to, to speak to these folks, there's this phrase that kept sticking out to him. Thus saith the Lord. Thus saith the Lord. Over and over again, he'd see it in the Bible. And one night, he went on a walk, and he stopped at a tree stump, and he set his Bible down. Not a pulpit, a tree stump. And he started to cry out to God. He said, God, I don't know. I don't know about all the things in this word. All the, I don't understand everything that's in your word. I have doubts. I'm not sure if Chuck is right. That was his friend, Charles Templeton. He said, I don't have all the philosophical answers and all the psychological answers that people come with from this book, but by faith, I'm going to believe that it's your word. And the next day he preached at Forest Home. 400 people made decisions to trust Christ. The woman who invited him to come preach came up to him and said, Billy, I've never seen you preach with such authority. He said that was the moment that the truth of God's word moved from his head into his heart. He's already doing ministry. He's confused, not sure what God's call. Billy Graham didn't know what God's call was for his life. And then a few weeks later, he preached what became a famous crusade in Los Angeles. It was planned to go for three weeks. It ended up going for eight weeks because people kept coming to a big tent to hear him talk about, for God so loved the world. How many of you have seen that this week? The simple message. And he answered the call that God had on his life. And here's my question for you this morning. Would you answer the call that God has on your life if you knew what it was? And and I think about it for me, and and I'm sure you don't do this, but sometimes I get a call on my cell phone, and you know what I do? I go, all right, who is it? How long is that going to take? And sometimes I get it, and I'm like, ooh, that's going to be bad. And so I just kind of send that one to voicemail, (laughs) let them leave their voicemail, and I can kind of process the information before I respond. And I thought about doing a survey with our church, but I didn't want to force anybody or manipulate anybody into being, you know, hypocritical in how they'd answer. But if I did a survey and I said, raise your hand, how many of you, if I said, if God called you to do something, you'd do whatever it was just because it was God and you'd raise your, you don't have to raise your hand right now, but you would. Some of you would. Some of you would be honest and do that, but some of you might feel compelled and it might not be true. How many of you would say, well, first I want to know what it is and then I'll decide whether I'll answer your call. And many of us are there, and we'll come back to why that is at the end of this message today. But today's message is called Answering the Call. And I just want you to think about the question, would you answer God's call on your life? Because today what we're going to see in our passage as we continue to walk through this book is that Peter's writing to some Christians, and he's telling them about God's call on their life. And we're going to see three calls that God has for all of us as believers. Now, there's, end of it, there's something that he calls all people to do, every person in the world, and that's why Billy Graham had the ministry he did. And the Bible says that God's not willing that any would perish. So he's calling every person to come and bow their knee to Jesus Christ. But he's got a specific call that'll be like daily, like he puts things before you on a daily basis he wants you to do. And and oftentimes we just think it means career and where we should live and who we should marry and those details. But he's got things for you all the time that come across your path. But then there's things that are true for us, all of us as Christians. We're going to see some of those today. And like I said when I I was praying, there's some things in here I wouldn't say to you. And so I think God has a word for us today. 1 Peter chapter 2 Uh, Just to remind you what's going on, in case you haven't been with us, these are persecuted Christians. They're suffering greatly. Peter's been reminding them. God's been speaking through Peter to remind them, this isn't your home. You're not home yet. You have a citizenship in a place you've never actually been to before, heaven. You're a foreigner in this place. You're an elect exile, he says. You're a stranger. And think about it. Foreigners have different culture. They've got different customs. They've got different values. So you should live different. And we've seen, if you want to make a difference in this world, you've got to be different than this world. And then we saw the last time we were in First Peter, a couple weeks ago, that, that God changes our identity when we bow our knee to Jesus. 
And so I'm just going to read verses 9 and 10 as a way of review. And then verse 11 is where we pick up today. It says, but you, speaking to you as Christians, if you're a believer, you bowed your knee to Jesus, are chosen. God chose you. A chosen race. A royal priesthood. Remember, a priest is a bridge builder. You're, you're a representative of God to the people, and you're a representative of the people to God. You, all of us, not just professional Christians, all of us are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, holy together, the way we love each other and forgive one another, and the way we interact with one another, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Some of these people were slaves. You know, slaves then were considered a thing, not even a people. He's saying, you're a people for his own, you are valued, you are loved. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you, not just Billy Graham, all of us, with the way we live our lives. Out of darkness into his marvelous light. We sang that today. And then he talks about the chains. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you were not received mercy, now you have received mercy. And then he addresses us today. And before he tells us what we're called to do, he tells us what he calls us. Look at the first word. Beloved. You're loved. And some of you just need to know that. Some people live our lives just running around trying to say, does anybody love me? The way we dress is like, somebody pay attention. Tell me you love me. Achievements we go after, how smart we try to show people are, how strong we try to show people are, all the stuff we try to do to prove something. We're, going, we're just basically crying out, am I loved? Am I, somebody love me? Let me tell you something. If you've ever wondered if you're loved, you are loved. Right here in God's word, it says it. You don't have to just take my word for it. You are loved. The word that's used for loved here, beloved, is the word in Second Peter that God uses for his own son, Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something. You're not Jesus. I'm not Jesus. I don't think that's a newsflash for any of us. But he loves you like he loves Jesus because of by faith you're in Christ. He sees you like he sees Jesus. You're loved. And then he says here, here's your first call. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, you're not your identity, you're, you're a foreigner here, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. And so he tells us why we should do this. He doesn't just say don't sin anymore. He says, hey, that's not your identity, and you're destroying yourself. And then verse 12 Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. It's a Greek word, kalos, good. Some of your translations say good. So that when they speak against you, notice it doesn't say if. The Gentiles here is referring to people that are hostile to Christianity. They will say things against you because of your faith. Maybe to your face, maybe not. It says when they do, they may see your life, that you'd outlive them. They'd see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. When Christ comes back, the very things that they accuse you of, that they slander you of, they say things about you for, will be the things that they're judged for. Because you outlived them. Now here's the reality. You don't just outlive them by years. That was awesome that Billy Graham lived to 99. Some of us in here might live to 100 years old. He's not saying outlive them by your years. He's saying outlive them by the quality of the life that you live. We don't outlive the world by the quantity of our days. We outlive them by the quality of our days. And here what he's saying is when he talks about your calling, he's saying you're called, look at verse 11, to new passions. You're called to have new passions in your life. Now here's the reality. Some of us think, well, I just like what I like. And that's how it is. How can you tell me to have a different desire? How can you tell me not to desire something that I want? And so I've, I've experienced this in my own life. Some of you know that I'm from Michigan. Some of you know I'm a sports fan. I'm a Detroit Lions fan. That's a terrible curse. Yeah, isn't it? Yeah, we got another, another Lions fan or they think it's a curse. It's one of the two. The only worst team is the Cleveland Browns, okay? So if you're a Browns fan, I don't know if you're from Cleveland or not, that's the only worst team. Some of you thought you were plagued with the Eagles. I would have loved to pick the Eagles. There was one year the Lions went 0-16, first team to lose 16 games in a season. Now, the Browns, thank you so much for joining the club. But 
after that season, I thought, I got to pick a new team. Like, I, don't live, I haven't lived in Michigan in like 20 years. I, it's got to be out of my system, even the water. It's out of my system at this point. And so I literally got on ESPN.com, and I started looking at all the logos. I'm like, no, I couldn't. I hate them. I, couldn't, I could never root for that color. Like, I just started going through. I'm like, that's, that's a, that, people probably love living there. I probably picked that team. And then I tried, and it just wouldn't happen. It's like I couldn't change my passions. So I've got this curse. I'm a Detroit Lions fan. Now, here's the reality. Some of us, as Christians, live like that with our sin. And we think, I'm, I'm a good guy. Like, overall, I do all these things good. I just kind of got this thing. And we all know what some of our things are, right? Like anger, I got this temper. Or I, I just, you know, I look at porn every once in a while. It's just this thing. It's a struggle. All guys struggle. Or I got this, you know, I gossip. I just talk about people, but everyone does it. And it's a prayer request, right? <laughs> I'm not saying the ones that are laughing are the ones that do it. I'm just saying and so there's all these sins that are out there, and we just kind of, well, we don't even say, well, I'm not Jesus. I'm not Billy Graham. I'm not Mother Teresa. And we kind of have these things as if they were just stuck with them. And so you go back to the passage, you see what it says here. It says, abstain. Why abstain? Because your identity's been changed. Your sojourners, your exiles, not only that, those things war, waging war against you. These aren't things that just stay there. And here's the good news. When your identity was changed, you read verses 1 through 3. In chapter 1, if you've got your own copy of the Bible, you can go back or you can scroll back if you've got the app opened up. It says there that you received a living hope, that you were born again. Do you know what happened to you when you trusted Christ? You weren't just forgiven of your sins. You were given, Ephesians chapter 1, the Holy Spirit to come live within you. When the Holy Spirit came to live within you, He gave you a capacity, an ability you didn't have before you trusted Christ, which is an ability to fight sin. And so when it says here to abstain, it, it's not this hopeless language like, hey, what you're doing is naughty, cut it out. So some of you here, you've, you've had this sin that's been part of your life for decades, and, I, and you, I'm not going to just say to you today, hey, don't do that anymore, cut that out. That's not very hope-giving, by the way. It's true that it's ruining your life, it's true that it will destroy you, that's not very hopeful. So what does the passage say? Well, look at it, verse 11. Verse 11 and 12 really say the exact same thing, just so you know. Verse 11 is the negative version. Verse 12 is the positive version. Verse 11, we'll do the negative first. Beloved, those I love, I urge you. He's exhorting these people. Remember your identity. Here's the motivator why before I even tell you what it is. As soldiers and exiles, abstain from passions of the flesh. And you've got to ask yourself, what are passions of the flesh? And some of us might just think of our sin. Well, the Bible talks about it all throughout the Bible. Peter's listed some of them in chapter 2 if you go back to verse 1. Malice, deceit, slander, those are lusts of the flesh. In Galatians, in Galatians chapter 5, put a little note here in my Bible, with Galatians chapter 5, verses 19 through 21, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy. None of these are good, by the way. These are not characteristics we want. Fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy. Envy's in the same category as sexual immorality, huh? Drunkenness, orgies. And I could just keep going on. He's, he says, and the like things. You get the idea. And so if you go, oh, I know, I know what one of my struggles is. It's in the list. And he's saying, abstain from that. But why? Why? Because it's not your identity. But I do it. And I, just, I, I like what I like. And so Paul talks about this battle even. As a, as a believer. I was talking to somebody this week. He said, do you think that Billy Graham ever struggles? Like, well, he was a sinner. So yeah. The apostle Paul struggled with sin. But here's the reality. It was sin within it wasn't just a sin out there. And see, one of the problems we oftentimes have is as Christians, we think it's our duty to tell society all about their sin. 
and we start to ignore the sin that's going on in our own hearts. That's why people say, I can go to church. There's hypocrites in the church. Well, we wouldn't be hypocrites if we just go, yeah, I got problems, but I also have Jesus, and I want you to have him. And so here he says, wage, they wage war against your soul. Just so you know, that word soul is not the immaterial part of you. It's not just talking about like the spiritual piece of you. It's talking about you, yourself. It's waging war against you. The, the word for wage war here is this long-term military campaign that's going after you. Not just trying to win little battles, it's trying to destroy you. We see what Satan's plan is for you. Do you know that? Do you know that Satan has a plan for your life? So God, you know, you hear the evangelistic uh, campus crusade oftentimes says, God loves you, he's got a wonderful plan for your life. Here's the four spiritual laws. Satan's got a plan for your life too. And it's a threefold plan, and we're told about it in John chapter 10. In John chapter 10, Jesus is given the analogy that he's the good shepherd, and then he talks about thief, and we're the sheep. And he says, but the thief comes, and he's talking about Satan, to steal from you, to rob you of your joy, he wants to rob you of love, wants to rob you of the fruit of the Spirit. He wants to destroy you, wants to kill you. He doesn't just want to trip you up. He doesn't just want to make you stumble. His goal is not to just, just to discourage you, just to get you into a state of depression, just to have you lose your job, just to have your marriage fall apart. He wants to kill you. See, the Bible says that sin leads to death. But most of us are like, yeah, yeah, but not really. I can manage my sin. And what Peter's saying here is this. No, you should live different because if you don't, that's killing you. There's a battle going on here. Some of you saw what happened. I'm sure everyone here has probably seen what happened in Florida a couple weeks ago. 17 people were killed in the school. Can you imagine being a parent and dropping your kids off on the carpool line or having them get on the bus and then getting a call that, hey, there was a shooting at your kid's school. Your, your child, your son, your daughter hasn't been accounted for yet. Can you even imagine that? And then what's come out now, this week, what it was is that there were police officers there that didn't go inside and battle. I saw one sheriff, there's debates about how many of them there were, but the, the officer that was actually on duty at the school that was armed, and so we can have all of our political arguments about gun control, mental health, all that stuff, but the, the reality is the sheriff dismissed this guy because he set up position outside, heard the gunshots, knew there was a battle going on inside, didn't go inside. My point is not to bash that guy, just so you know. It's to say this, we do the same kind of thing with sin. Oh, there's a battle within? But we don't face the battle. Do you know what the sheriff said? He got asked directly. I was so refreshed just to hear him, whether you agree with his answer or not. I was just so glad not to get some political mambo-jambo from one of these guys that are answering questions. He said, well, what should he have done? One of the media said. He said he should have gone inside, he should have confronted the killer, and he should have killed him. And that's what we're supposed to do with sin. John Owen, one of our church fathers, says it like this, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. And we think that we don't have to fight sin because we think that sin won't win. I'm a good guy. I'm good. Mostly I got all these things. But there's just this one thing over here. Envy. Envy's not. I mean, everybody. We live in America. It's in the same list with sexual immorality. Did you read it? So is yours. And so, so what do we do? How do we, how do we battle sin? So I'm not just saying to you, stop, cut it out. Naughty, it's bad. Stop, cut it out. Well, you go back to chapter 2 at the beginning. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You want to change your desires? Start, start sampling some other dishes. Taste and see, experience God. And you start realizing, that's what I want. I want that. And the other stuff starts to become distasteful. I've talked to some people before that talk about, I struggle with this sin. I don't even know what happened. And they start talking. It wasn't like there was this, they didn't have a tree stump moment. But what they did is they started to delight in the Lord. And as they got closer to Jesus, they got further from sin. Because what happens is every time we choose our sin, we're actually turning our back on God. 
And so you want to know what the problems are in the schools, and you can, and I'm not against like helping people with mental health or making, making common sense laws about guns. I'm not, not even making a political statement here. But that's not the issue. The issue is the wrath of God in our culture. We've said we don't want him anymore, and he's promised us what he's going to do as a result of that. And then we blame him when he's not there, when we told him not to come here. You want God in your life, then make God central in your life. Well, that's how you fight sin. Verse 12 says it like this, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, good, so that when they speak against you, when, it will happen, as evildoers, they may see your life, that your life would refute them. And they would glorify God. They, the non-believers, would glorify God on the day of visitation because of your life. Well, what Peter has to have in mind here is what Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 5, which is part of the DNA of this church. We talk about what we want. We talk about our vision and the ultimate results a lot of times, but ultimately what happens is our vision is that for your life, that you would live a life that so honors Christ, that non-believers would see your life and glorify God. It's Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. Let your light so shine before men that they would, see, they would see your good deeds and they would glorify God. They won't use our church language. They don't know it. But that God would receive glory because of the life that you live. And, and some of us think, well, I'm not Billy Graham. I can't do that. Oh, it's, it's oftentimes so much simpler than what we think. I was clicking around on some news sites this week. I saw a story of a guy who was confessing that he wanted to be a school shooter. He's probably about 40 years old now. But he's talking about back when he was in high school, 1996, he said. He said, I, I, he, he said, if you get told you're worthless enough, you'll start to think you're worthless. And he said he was bullied, he was, he was overweight. He said, if you're, you get called the fat kid and you don't play sports and you do these things, you start to believe all that stuff's true. And he said, I, I had a plan, and I wanted to kill myself, but I wanted to cause as much pain as I could when I went out. And he said, it wasn't even because of hatred to those people. It's because I wanted people there, there to be pain when I died. In other words, you know what he's saying? I want to be loved. He didn't do it because he couldn't buy an AR. He didn't explain why that was, that was the case. But sometime after that, he was planning on killing himself, hadn't told anybody. That night, got invited to a friend's house. The friend's mom made him a blueberry pie, and that was the turning point for him. Now he's got four kids, says he loves life. He said, but people just need to be shown love. Let me tell you something. You might not be Billy Graham. I bet you can make a blueberry pie. All of us here can show love. You know who you are? You know how you do this? You recognize who you are and your identity. You receive. You know some of us, you know in your heads that God loves the world. But you have not received in your heart that he loves you. And some of you know the gospel, but whether it's because of your pride or because of your sin or because of your lack of trust, and maybe that's because of a past experience, whatever it is, you've not received the love of God in your life. When you've received the love of God in your life, it secures you that you can then love other people. And so some of you here, you know, your students, maybe you're a student in this school or a student in Leesville High School or one of the schools around here, and all these people are hurting. Everybody's crying out, be loved. Would you, could you possibly be so secure in God's love for your life that you could be free to love other people and it wouldn't matter how they receive you? And some of you in your workplace, and, in, and that's true for all of us, it's not just teenagers. You were called to have new passions. But not only that, we're going to keep going through this passage. We only have so much time. You're called, and I wouldn't say this one. This is one of the ones that expository preachings when you go verse by verse. If I was just picking stuff to preach on, I wouldn't pick this one, by the way. You're called to submit to authority. And God's placed different authorities in our lives. Kids, your parents, all of us, the government, police officers, all that stuff. 
and I know many of us are like, well, I don't like, either you love or you hate Donald Trump. It's a pretty polarizing figure. Obama, either you loved or hated Obama. It's a pretty polarizing figure. You decide. And you're like, that's not what he's talking about here in this passage. So God's put all the authorities in our place. We're all anti-authority. And sociologists talk about, it's because we're American or it's because whatever. No, it's because we're sinners. All of us have been anti-authority. And so look at what the passage says here in verses 13 through 15, because I wouldn't say this. This is what God has to say to us today. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. So there's the role of government for you. For, do you want to know what this is they're calling? This is the will of God. (laughs) So listen, high school student who won't submit to your parents' authority but wants to know where you should go to college, you think God's going to answer that prayer? He clearly said what God's will is right here, and you won't submit to that. He's not going to answer the other prayer. He said that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. And so he's got a reason for why he says to do this. And the call here is that we'd submit to authority. Now let me tell you something. I feel like I have to say this. I'm not a hypocrite. I don't always do this. I felt convicted of this this week as I was listening to another pastor preach on this passage, and he said this line. He said, did you know that being on time is a matter of faith? And I was speeding. (laughs) I had, uh, from our elder retreat, we had an elder retreat uh, back in January. Driving back from the elder retreat, so we've had times of prayer, we've been in God's word, we confess sin to one another, we're praying for, you know, you, and what does God want to say, what does he say directly from his word, what does he want to speak by the spirit into our hearts, and that I'm leaving, we're driving, now I'm going to justify it a little bit and just say this, <laughs> North Car- have you been in an eastern North Carolina town, it's not like it goes 55, 50, 45, 40, no, it's like 55, 25, <laughs> and so I'm cruising, 55-ish, and all of a sudden, I see these blue lights in the rearview mirror. John Cullen, our executive pastor, is in the passenger seat. I went, oh, no, we're getting pulled over. And then I realize he's pulling the car behind us over. And I just kind of keep going. I'm like, he's not coming to get us. Praise God from whom <laughs> blessings flow. A few days later, I get a text message from one of our other elders. I got your ticket. It was one of our guys that got pulled over. I prayed for him. I prayed. If that's a Christian getting pulled over, have him share the gospel. You know, was like, I hadn't thought about it after that. So then I said to the elder, I said, you were driving your own car, right? Like, don't be blaming this on me. So I don't always do this. And oftentimes my motivation for doing it when I do it would be if I thought I was going to get pulled over. But did you see, this was convicting to me this week. Did you see that it doesn't say submit to authority because of the consequences It doesn't say submit to the authority because you agree with them either, because submission and agreement are not the same thing. It doesn't say here to submit to authority because that's what good citizens do. It says here, submit, be subject, verse 13, for the Lord's sake. Because here's the reality. Our submission to the authority in our lives actually reflects our relationship with our God because God put those people in authority. And I'm not saying he put them in authority because they're godly. And I'm not saying even what they're doing is right. He put King David on the throne, a man after God's own heart. He also put Nebuchadnezzar on the throne. He also put Pharaoh on the throne. Pharaoh was bad, by the way, if you haven't read the Old Testament. He put Herod, Herod who killed all the babies in Bethlehem. He put him on the throne. And Pilate as a governor. You know the story? Pilate says, I have authority to kill. You don't have any authority that God didn't give you. 
and Nero. When Peter writes this, do you know who's on the throne? Nero. Let me tell you a little bit about Nero without going into like a big history lesson. He hated Christians. There comes a point after this book is written where he starts to have entertainment in his backyard. He takes Christians and he lights them on fire as torches for his backyard. He's the guy that ends up having Peter crucified upside down, cuts the Apostle Paul's head off. And in that context, Peter's saying, submit. Submit to the authorities in your life. You know why? Because God put those authorities in your life. And if you're anti-authority and you say, I'm anti-authority, what you're actually saying is you're anti-God. You, might just, you just might not realize that's what you're saying. How we submit to the authorities in our lives reflects our relationship with God. Do we trust Him? And here's the reality. None of us would even be saved if it wasn't for Jesus' submission. You see, the reality is we all want to be God. We all want to have control. We all want to have power. And that's why. Not because we're American. Not because we're Protestants. Not because when we watch Star Wars, we want to be the rebel. No one picks the evil empire, right? Do they? I don't know. It's not because we, have this, just, 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 we want to rebel. No, it's because we're sinful. Sometimes rebelling is right. And we see that throughout the Bible. The Hebrew midwives, when they don't kill the babies... Peter himself, in Acts chapter 4, you can look it up on your, on your own. Peter who writes this verse, and so let's not take the verse in isolation, full context, when somebody tells him to disobey God, he says, no, you decide. I'm going to obey God rather than man. So when somebody tries to force you to do something contrary to your Christian faith, sound doctrine, what God's teaching and telling us to do, then you rebel. But otherwise, no, you submit. This is an issue of personal preferences. And by submitting, what you show is that you trust God. See, there's, Jesus is so interesting because he's so contrary. Adam was a grasper. He wanted to grasp authority for himself. Remember the temptation that Satan gave? You'll be like God. And every one of us since then has tried to grab a hold of control in our lives, to write our own plan, to show that we know best. That's why we want the voicemail and not just answer the call. And so what we end up doing is grasping. You know what Philippians chapter 2 says about Jesus? He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself a servant. He submitted, even became obedient to his father to the point of death on the cross. And in doing that, he placed himself under the subjection of human authority. In fact, there's one place in the Bible where he does something so low you couldn't even command a Jewish servant to do it. You had to command a Gentile. That's how racist it was. And he did it. He washed feet of fishermen. There's an interesting verse in that passage, though, that I think tells us how we can do this, because this is beyond our natural ability. And I, and I wonder when I read John chapter 13, you can read John chapter 13 on your own later, why is this verse in here? Why, do you, why don't you just tell us that he did it? Why don't you just say that these guys were selfish and they were arguing, as Luke tells us, they were arguing about who's the greatest, and Jesus was like, oh, I want to show you that the greatest are the ones that serve. But instead, there's this verse in John chapter 13. In John chapter 13, verses 3 and 4 says this, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And then he served. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and then the story gets told. What do we see there? Jesus knew he was beloved. Jesus knew who he was. Jesus knew where he came from. Jesus knew where he was going. Jesus was secure in his identity. If you would get verses 9 and 10... And the beginning of verse 11, you're all beloved. If you would get this, you would be free to submit. Do you know what the next verse says? Verse 16, live as people who are free. Wait, you just said I had to submit myself. Yeah, there's a freedom. You've got a freedom 
that you don't have to conform to this world. Their natural tendency when they don't like something, fight or flight, you can submit. Students to teachers. Kids to your parents. Wives to husbands. Oh, we don't have supposed to talk about that in this day and age. God's Word says that. All of us to the police, all of us to the government that's been put ahead of us, unless they tell you something contrary from the Scriptures, live as free people, not using your freedom to cover up evil, but living as servants of God. That's who you actually serve. I love verse 17. Verse 17 reads, like I think it should be a man retreat. Sorry, ladies. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Don't forget, the emperor is one of everyone. Honor everyone. Have a special love for your brothers in Christ. Fear God. That's the beginning of wisdom. And also, don't forget, honor the emperor. Nero was the emperor then. And then he gives us the third calling, verse 18. And this one's one that I think we're not going to like either. Sorry. It's just what God says today. We're called to suffer. You are called to suffer. You're called to submit to authority. You are called to live for new passions. You are called to suffer. Verse 18 starts off with servants or slaves, some of your translations may say. Let me pause and say this. Rather than just historically explaining to you how slavery then is different than what we think of for our country, it's different than sex slavery and labor slavery that's going on in the world today, more slaves in the world today than ever before. I'm not trying to explain away what's happening here. Some people wonder, why doesn't the Bible condemn slavery? The Bible does condemn slavery, just so you know. It's listed, when speaking to masters, it's listed in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 10, you can go and read that on your own, amongst sexual morality, homosexuality, enslavers is the next one that's used in that verse. That's, you're not supposed to own a person. But Peter's not talking here to masters, he's talking to the slaves, the most vulnerable in society that weren't even thought of as being people, and they just heard, once you were not a people, now you are the people, and they might be thinking, now we're going to raise up, because we're a people. And he says this, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God. One endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. And then he goes on, for what credit is it if when you sin, you're beaten for it? You deserve that. And then you endure. But when you do good and suffer for it and endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And then verse 21, for to this you've been called. We've been called to suffer. We've been called to suffer even unjustly. And so in this passage, there's two different types of suffering. There's one suffering, which is kind of you reap what you sow. Bad decisions, bad results. We tell our kids that, right? Bad decisions, bad results. You stick a needle in the outlet, you're going to get shocked. Like bad things happen when you do bad stuff. Some of you are in pain in your life, and it's a result of your own bad decisions. We're not talking about that right now. That is something to be talked about. Some people, we're, we're, we're experiencing not punishment from God because the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus on the cross, but discipline from God because God disciplines those he loves. Discipline never seems pleasant in the time, but he's doing it because he's for you. It's so that it'll produce a fruit of righteousness in your life. Not pleasant in the time. We're not talking about that kind of suffering today, though. What we're talking about is suffering. You might have done exactly what God wanted you to do in a given situation, and as a result... You're suffering, whether that you didn't get a promotion, somebody said something about you behind your back, or to these Christians, you need to get your head chopped off. He's saying that in this, endure. In other words, when pain comes, press into the pain. Our natural tendency is to run. When we experience pain, we run. We touch the stove. Ooh, I'm not touching the stove, I forget. I'm just saying, when you experience pain, press into the pain. 
Why? Why would you do that? Some of you know that I have perfectionistic tendencies, especially if we've worked close with one another before. Um, I haven't shared with all of you before, though, that it's gotten to the point in my life at times where it's, it's like obsessive compulsive. Like some people are like, I'm OCD, and they're just saying that they're like anal. No, I was like, for real, like everything has to be a certain way. And I remember I was at a point in my life at one time where to come into my office, if, I, if somebody had gone in there since the last time I was there, I knew it. It didn't matter if you moved a book on the shelf, moved my chair from the way that I left it, whatever it was, I knew. I was like, who was in my office? What's going on in here? Was the garbage empty? Was the cleaner? Like, what took place? And I remember one day coming into my office, and before I would study, I'd get everything exactly this right way. I took this pad of paper, and I straightened it out. And God said to me at that moment, why does everything have to be okay in your life for you to be okay with your life? That was convicting. Because you know what? Everything's never going to be okay. You live in this world. As long as you're in this world, this is not your home. Things aren't going to be okay. And then I'm okay with you. And you know what God does? Is he takes the pain in our lives a lot of times and he shows us our greatest problem is actually within us. You know, we talk about battle and passions and talk about Satan's got a plan for your life. Satan would have no chance in your life if you didn't have these inward desires towards sin already. And so he uses that. Each one is led astray. Read James chapter 1. You want the cycle of sin. I think it's verses 14 through 16. You read that. Each one's led astray when by their own evil desires. We go after this. It's tempting to us because of our evil desires that are within us. D.L. Moody said one time, the, the man that he had the most problem with in his whole life was D.L. Moody. And so sometimes we get people in our lives, government officials, bosses, whoever it is, annoying people, okay, whatever you want to call them, and you go, well, I just want them gone. No, God's actually put them in your life for a reason. It's probably to press some junk out of the inside of you. And so you, you, you endure. You en- I've got a plan for you. You know what God does? I don't know what his plan is in exactly all of your suffering. Some of you, he's going to deliver you out of the suffering. Some of you, he's going to help you endure the suffering. Not because you got the power, but because he's going to show up. Some of you, he's refining you through the suffering. Some of you, some of you, what he wants you to do is to just bring, continue to be faithful and let him take care of the results. And the results, the good things that are going to happen, might not happen for you until you cross into eternity. But you, you endure. And he teaches us in this passage four lessons on suffering. And let me tell you something. This passage is an evidence that God changes lives. Because Peter's writing this. Peter, who when they came to arrest Jesus, he tried to cut a guy's ear off. You know what Jesus did? Fix the ear. Peter, quick, cause a messes. No. And he started to do a work in Peter's life. So Peter's the guy who says submit to authority. Peter, a guy, when he first heard about the cross, you know what he said? No, no, no. No, not you, Jesus. That's not God's plan for you, God. <laughs> but here what he does is he points us to the cross in our suffering. He says in verse 21, for this you've been called because, here's why, Christ also suffered. You're following the suffering servant and you think you're not going to suffer. Deny yourself. Take up your cross. Follow me. Yeah, 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 but I live in America. It still applies to us, beloved. Leaving you an example. Now, Jesus is more than an example. He's also our Savior. He's a real dude, just so you know, and he wants a real relationship with you, but he's also our example so that you might follow in his steps. And then he gives us these four things. And he's quoting these passages from Isaiah. The first thing is this. He committed no sin. He suffered without sinning. Verse 22. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. And so here's the reality. When we suffer, that is not an excuse for sin. Don't use your suffering as an excuse for the sin in your life. But Scott, you don't know. You don't understand. You don't know what my dad was like. You don't know what this experience was like. You don't know. I don't. You are right. That is a thousand percent true. But Jesus does. 
He has suffered in every way. He's been tempted in every way. He is, he's your high priest. And he came here so he could experience it. And he suffered and he did not sin. And when you, in your suffering, choose not to sin, not to, not to slander back, not to, get reven- not to do the, other, the stuff that you naturally want to do, you glorify Christ. And that's why you're here. Remember, live such good lives that they would glorify God. Here's how you do it in suffering. You don't use it as an excuse for sin. Not only that, you suffer without retaliating. In the next verse, you see, you see the second thing that he teaches us in our suffering. He suffered without retaliating. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting. Here's how he did it. Entrusting himself to him who judges justly. That's vulnerable, just so you know. That's why some of us haven't received the love of Christ, because we don't trust God the Father, and we don't trust that He wants what's best for us. And so first we need to hear what He has to say, and then we'll determine what's best for us. And here we see Jesus going, it's not because He trusted Pilate. It's not because He trusted Herod. It's not because He trusted those who are mocking Him. And think about, think about when Jesus would be mocked on the cross. If he healed others. He could help people. Come down. If I was Jesus, I'm not Jesus. If I was Jesus... I'd have messed with some people. Being up on the cross, you can still die on the cross. I'm going to come. The guy who just said to his friend, he could come down from the cross. I'd stand right between them and be like, yeah, what were you saying? And then I'd go right back up to the cross. So they'd be like, did that just happen? What happened? I'd just be messing with people. He didn't mess with them. You say what you want to say. I trust, I trust my father. They start talking trash about Jesus, he could have melted their lips together. You know what he says in that situation when Peter cuts that guy's ear off? He says, couldn't I call 12 legions of angels if I need somebody to fight for me? But I'm submitting. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He did not threaten, no deceit. And this next one we can't do, but we see what he does, and we can point people to what he does. He bore our sins. He bore our sins through suffering. Verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This is not just so that we could be forgiven, then we would point people to him. He's got a call on our lives. Part of that call is in suffering. And what happens is that in our suffering, we can point people to the one who bore our sins. Because here's the reality. No matter how bad you've suffered, and some of you might be the person that says, no one in this room has suffered like me. You have not suffered the amount you deserve. Because Jesus did that for you on the cross. You deserve eternal torment, separation from God because of your sin. No matter what you're suffering, and I'm not saying the suffering in your life is because you deserve it, but no matter what you're suffering, you haven't suffered to the point that you deserve. Jesus did that. Think about the the word bore. It's a word for bearing weight. Think about the weight of this. He had the weight of your, all of your sensuality, all of your slander, all of your anger, and for all of the world on his shoulders. He bore our sins. The wrath of God poured out on Him on the cross. You wonder if you're loved? You are loved. And you can point people in your suffering to the one who bore our sins. In that school shooting, I heard one of the people that died was a football coach. He took bullets so that other people could live. And I heard that he's a Christian. He was pointing people to a Savior. Because Jesus took the wrath of His Father on Himself so that you and I could have life. He bore our sins. But not only that, He gives healing and He gives hope. At the last part of verse 24 and verse 25. It's by His wounds you've been healed. It's quoting Isaiah there. 
for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned. That word returned is that you've turned toward. It's the word for repentance. You've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Here's the hope. Here's the hope in this whole passage. No matter where you're at, if you haven't trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, you still got breath in your lungs, you can turn to Jesus today. Like Billy Graham would say, let today be the day of repentance. Just like a husband and wife comes to the altar and says, I do, surrender your life to God and say, I surrender to you, I turn to you. If you're not, not a follower of Jesus today, the call on your life is to trust Jesus. If you are a follower of Jesus, and, and maybe you've turned your back on him, you can turn back. You can always turn back. Those of you who have returned to the shepherd, he's calling you back. That's the call. Come, come back, come back. Well, some of you are walking with Jesus with you need words. You need encouragement to do us. Look at your Savior. Keep your eyes on the cross. Look how he suffered for you. Look how he submitted. Look at, look at how when he was tempted, he had no sin. But even when you do sin, he bore that sin. And you can turn back to him. And today what we're going to do right now is just bow our heads and close our eyes. And I want to ask you, some of you in here, is there anybody in here that would acknowledge you're not a Christian? I'm not asking if you want to be a Christian today. Would you just raise your hand and acknowledge, I have not trusted Jesus in my I have not received that love. Would you just pop your hand up and acknowledge that that's true? Because I want to pray for you. Would you just pop your hand up in the air? I'm not asking you to trust Jesus as your Savior this moment. You can. You can in a moment, and I'm going to pray. And if you want to trust Jesus, you can. Would you just pop your hand up and say, I, don't, I, don't, I haven't done that. Is there anybody here that's suffering today? Would you just raise your hand? Just pop it up. Say, I'm suffering. It could be different degrees. You might be, don't think to yourself, somebody's suffering worse than me, so I don't raise my hand. I see people suffering. I see you in the back, on, on my left, on the right side of the room, in the middle of the room here. I see you. Is anybody in here that would say, I need to repent. I need to repent of some sin. Things that came out in this passage today. I, I know I need to repent. Would you just pop your hand up? I see people, people raising their hand, multiple people raising their hand. Let's just go to the Lord together right now. And you know, you know what business you need to do with the Lord. If you need to trust Jesus as your Savior, would you call upon him right now? You don't have to wait until you clean your life up. Jesus bore your sins. You don't have to deal with your sins. He dealt with your sins. Trust him as your Savior. And if you want to do that, will you pray this prayer with me? Father God, I acknowledge that I am a sinner and I need a Savior. Right now in this moment, I want to ask Jesus Christ to be my Lord and Savior. Would you just pray that prayer? If you prayed that prayer just now, would you raise your hand? Would you acknowledge that that's true? I'm going to pray for you. I see you right here from the front. I see you two over here on the front left here. Before you leave today, would you mark that on your connection card? We want to send you some information about how you can be a follower of Jesus Christ, how you can walk with him now that you've become a follower. In that moment, you became a follower of Jesus. And all of heaven rejoices with you. I saw three different people raise their hand. In this church, we rejoice with you. And Father, I pray for those in here that acknowledge there's repentance that needs to happen in their lives, that believers that need to return to you. Thank you that you keep taking us back. Thanks that we don't just become a Christian and then we better do good now. That you bore all of our sins that we can always return to you. And I pray for the prodigals in this room that need to come home, bring them home. And I pray for those that are living in isolation and aren't connected with this church family, that you get them connected with some brothers and sisters in Christ, that we love the brothers. We can honor one another. I pray for there's any here that have wrong amongst each other, that there would be reconciliation. God, I pray for marriages that are under attack and people don't even know that it's going on. I pray that you bring reconciliation. I pray you'd humble hearts. I pray you'd do a work today. God, I pray we wouldn't just pray about revival. I pray we'd experience it. Help us to experience revival in our midst right now. Some of us personally in our own hearts for you came in here and we're kind of lukewarm. We're kind of going through the motions. Ignite a fire in us and a passion. Give us new passions. Give us a passion for your son, Jesus. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.